Our scripture reading today is from Mark chapter 13. As I said, we're continuing our series in Mark's gospel. This is a difficult passage, folks, and we are going to work through it uh, slowly and carefully together. Uh, But first, we're going to read it. So Mark chapter 13, starting reading at verse 14. We remember this is God's word. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down into the house, nor enter to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. For in those days there will be tribulation such as not been since the beginning of creation, which God created until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, whom he chose, he shortened the days. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, here he he is there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, see, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days... After that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the, power, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. Now, Learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see these things happening, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Amen. We thank God for this reading from his truth. I don't know, folks, if any of you have ever seen the children's film, The Princess Bride. Uh, It's a really, really good uh, children's movie. If you've never seen it, I would definitely advise uh, that you watch it. In The Princess Bride, one of the characters keeps using the word inconceivable. And every time he uses the word inconceivable, he uses it wrong. He does it incorrectly. And another of the characters keeps saying to him, every time he says it, you keep using that word, I do not think it means what you think it means. I do not think it means what you think it means. And it can become the case for all of us that we become so accustomed with 
doing or saying something that we come to think something means what we think it means rather than what it actually means. Now, I'm sure that I fall into this trap. I'm sure that I use words incorrectly all the time. But isn't it the case that some things can become so familiar to us that we just assume that we know what they're about rather than actually digging into the detail? The passage that we have before us today is going to be like that. It might not be a hugely familiar passage to many of us, but as we read it, you probably thought to yourself, I know what this is about. It's about the second coming of Jesus. It's about his return, right? Well, I do not think it means what you think it means. This is a difficult passage. But I'm committed to preaching through books of the Bible, passage by passage. And when you do that, you can't just ignore the difficult passages. So we're not going to ignore this one. This morning, we're going to work hard. We're going to look at the detail. We're going to try and understand what exactly is God's word saying to us. Last week, we dealt with the beginning of the chapter. You'll remember the disciples, well, they had put their trust in earthly things, things represented by the temple. They thought there, there was the temple in Jerusalem, and because the temple was there, God was with them, and so they were safe. To them, the temple represented God's presence with them. And they said to Jesus, look at these big stones. Look at these beautiful buildings. This is our safety, Jesus. This is our security. But what does Jesus teach them? He teaches that the things of this world can't be trusted. Those stones would come down. The things of this earth are no place to put your eternal hope. If you look back to verses 9 to 13 from last week's passage for just a moment, you'll see that Jesus is is really clear that there's no security to be found in national identity. There's no hope to be found in government. In fact, government is what will, uh, they'll be put on trial before the government, before governors. Jesus even teaches that there's no hope in our families. Maybe we put hope in our families, but Jesus says brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Hope in earthly things is misplaced. As Christians, we can expect to be hated by the things of this world. Simply for being Christians. Jesus says the one who endures to the end will be saved. I want us to slow down a bit here and think for a moment about how we should understand biblical prophecy. Because that's what Jesus is doing here. His teaching in in chapter 13 is prophecy. And so it's useful to know that biblical prophecy often speaks at the same time about two things in the future that are not the same event. Okay, so how can I illustrate this for us? Well, I want you to imagine you're driving towards a mountain range. 
And as you look out at that mountain range, it looks as if all of those mountains are one distance away from you. All of the mountains look the same distance away. But as you get closer, as you get closer, you realise that they're not all the same distance away. Some of the mountains are closer and some are further away. Biblical prophecy often works like that. So here, Jesus is describing events that are in the future, but some of them are years and years and years away. Some of them might even be thousands of years away, but some are much closer. Jesus is talking about them at the same time, but some are years away, some are months away, and some are even days away for the disciples. Verses 9 to 13 that I've just mentioned are, I think, an example of things that lie just a few months and a few years away for the disciples. The betrayal of family, being beaten in synagogues, being brought before rulers and arrested. Well, those are all things that happen to the disciples shortly after Jesus ascends into heaven. They are future events, but they're not thousands of years away. They're only a couple of years away, maybe even less than that, for the disciples. So what I'm trying to help us see here is that Jesus is talking about the end, but the end describes everything that happens from the death of Jesus to his return. We need to have that in our heads, that Jesus is describing things that span thousands of years in this chapter of God's word. You'll remember that in, in Mark 13, Jesus is answering two connected but distinct questions from the disciples. Back in verse four, the disciples asked, when will these things be and what is the sign they are about to be accomplished? And in answer to that question, Jesus tells them to watch out that no one deceives them. He says, seeking signs is dangerous. Seeking signs of the end is not a good idea. Verse 22 in our passage today, false Christs and false prophets will rise up and will show signs and wonders to deceive. Back in Mark 8, in chapter 8 of Mark's gospel, Jesus has already told us that no sign will be given. So rather than follow the signs, Jesus' disciples must take heed. That's what verse 23 tells us. We should watch out. We should listen to the words of Christ. We should be on guard. Seeking signs keeps our eyes focused on this world, on earthly and temporal realities rather than the eternal and heavenly truths. Jesus says, after his death, things will be difficult, but they should endure. That's what they need to do. They just need to endure to the end. Jesus isn't saying there won't be signs. He's just saying the signs in themselves are looking for the signs in themselves isn't fruitful. But there will be signs there will be some things that must happen 
And today I want us to zoom in and focus especially on verses 24 to 27 of Mark 13. In verses 24 to 27, Jesus gives what I think is a sort of timetable of events. He doesn't say when those events will happen, but he does give a timetable of how the events themselves will unfold. Look at verse 24. In those days after that tribulation. In those days after that tribulation. We need to ask ourselves, what is the tribulation? What is the tribulation? Well, if we look above or in the previous verses, Jesus has just described something called the abomination of desolation. Verse 19 tells us that the abomination of desolation will cause tribulation. Tribulation such as the world has never seen and will never see again. So the the tribulation is the abomination of desolation. What happens after that tribulation? Well, Jesus says, the Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory. And then, verse 27, he will send out angels to gather his elect from the four winds, which is explained that it's from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And so there are three main events in our passage today. Three main events. And I I want us to focus on these three events. And I hope that anchoring our thoughts here is going to help us. It's going to help us focus what's going on in this difficult passage. But... I'm not going to make it easy because I'm not going to deal with them in order. Okay, so I'm sorry about that. But it's easier, I think, to start with the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds. So Jesus says, here's the things that will happen. There'll be the abomination of desolation, then the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds, and then sending out of angels to gather the elect. But we're going to start with the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and glory. Jesus tells us himself that the origin of this phrase, the Son of Man, is found in Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision. And you can look it up and and read it later today. There are beasts in Daniel 7. And these beasts represent the nations. And what they're doing is warring with one another. They're, they're biting lumps out of each other. These beasts are fighting. But then Daniel sees one called the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days takes his seat. And the beastly human powers are stripped of their authority. Their authority is taken away from them. And then in verses 13 and 14 of Daniel 7, we read this. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. 
His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Did you hear what Daniel said? One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. He was led into the presence of the ancient of days. And he was given authority, glory and sovereign power. So we need to figure out when this is. What is the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds? Well, it's the same day that Jesus is speaking about in Mark chapter 13. It's the same day we read about in Psalm 110. We, We had that a couple of weeks ago. Remember, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. It's that day. And it's the same day we just read about at the start of this service in Philippians 2. God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, authority, power and glory, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so let me bring this all to a conclusion, the coming of the Son of Man in the clouds with great power and glory is not the return of Christ. It is the ascension of Jesus. After Jesus rose from the dead, he stayed with his disciples for 40 days and then ascended into heaven. And what was he hidden by? He was hidden by the clouds. The coming of the Son of Man in the clouds is his arrival in heaven. At his ascension into glory, his exaltation, his taking the throne at the right hand of the Father. I want you to think about this for the disciples in the early days of the church. What a comfort it must have been to them to know that Jesus is in heaven. What a comfort it is for us today and in difficult days to know that our Lord has come in the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus has authority. Jesus has been given authority and sovereign power. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and it will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. It's this king that we live in service of today. Folks, I want you to take great hope and great comfort in knowing that Jesus has all authority and that his kingdom will never be destroyed. We don't have to wait for his return for Jesus to have all authority. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. What did we say that last week? We said this world has ended. The kingdoms and dominions of this world are over. Whether those are national kingdoms or the dominions of sin and darkness, those enemies are piled up under the feet of Jesus. His kingdom will not be destroyed. But those who are his people, who are called out of this world who are brought into his protection through the church, 
We are the ones who are blessed. We are blessed with his saving grace. We're blessed. He rewards our obedience. He corrects our sins. He preserves us. He supports us in all of our temptations and sufferings. And he powerfully orders all things for his own glory and for our good. Friends, we are not waiting for Jesus to be given all power and authority. He has all power and glory and authority. His dominion is an everlasting dominion and it will not pass away. I hope that's a comfort to us today. But what about the headline event? What about the thing that Jesus describes that has to happen first? The abomination of desolation, verse 14. We need to think about it. It clearly comes before the ascension of Jesus. I want to suggest to you today that the abomination of desolation is, of course, the passion of Jesus Christ. His public trial, his crucifixion, and his death. Here in Mark chapter 13, we as readers, and Jesus is teaching the disciples to prepare us for what's about to happen next. For the very things that we remember in this next week, running up to Easter Sunday. That Jesus was arrested by the Jewish leaders and handed over to a Gentile ruler. This Gentile ruler sentenced Jesus to death. All through this gospel up to this point, Mark has been going immediately, immediately, immediately. He's, he's rushing us through at breakneck speed. And now he slows down because we've got to the cross. That's where he wanted to get us. What does the cross mean? Well, this phrase, abomination of desolation, comes from the book of Daniel as well. It's from chapter 11 this time. And the, the sentiments underlying this Greek, the Greek words, abomination of desolation, are words which are a sacrilege, an abomination to God, and totally destructive. What is it that's an abomination to God and totally destructive? Well, does it not sound like the death of the Messiah? The death of the one who came to save his people, being rejected by them? Brutally murdered, the only sinless person ever to live, being killed as a criminal. That's an abomination. Israel's leaders have been waiting for their Messiah. They ought to be welcoming him with open arms and shouts of hallelujah. But all through Mark's gospel, they've been opposing him. In the very place where he should have been welcomed, Jesus is rejected. He's mocked. He's crucified. Do you see that the abomination of desolation is standing where it ought not be? Does the reader understand? This event, the abomination of desolation, the crucifixion of Christ, marks the end of the world. In this event, we see the Jewish temple system crumbling. 
Now, it isn't until AD 70 that the physical world catches up with the spiritual reality. In AD 70, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, just as Jesus promised in verse 2. And that's why Jesus is able to say in verse 30 that this generation will not pass away until these things have happened. The cross of Christ is an abomination of desolation. And friends, this is the central event in all of human history. It really is the worst thing that ever happened. The sinless God of creation being nailed to a cross. When Jesus, the one who made them, hung on the cross, the sun did not give its light. The moon was darkened. This is a distress unequaled from the beginning. When God created the world in the beginning, nothing, nothing as evil as this has ever happened and it will never be equaled again. The worst thing that has ever happened. But because of God's grace, because of his love, because of his sovereign power, it's also the greatest thing that has ever happened. It's the event that secured the victory of Christ over sin and death. It's through his death that our sin has been punished. The wrath of God against our sinfulness was poured out on Christ. And the the darkness that covered the land at that time was a sign of God's judgment against sin. Because Jesus has been punished, we can be forgiven. Through this abomination, we are brought new life. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For my every sin was laid on him, and here in the death of Christ, I live. Here in the death of Christ, you live. So the abomination of desolation is the crucifixion. The coming of the Son of Man in the clouds is his ascension into glory. I want us to finish briefly by looking at the sending out of the angels to gather the elect from the four winds. If the coming of the Son of Man is the resurrection and the ascension, what comes after that? That's what we need to think about. The gathering of the elect from the four winds, well, it speaks of the age of the church. It speaks of everything after Pentecost, right up to today. The word angel in verse 27 is the Greek word angelos. And I think legitimately we can translate that word as messenger. Jesus will send out his messengers. This simply points to the work of the church. We are Christ's messengers preaching the gospel. Gathering the elect from the ends of the earth. These signs that we read in Mark 13 read like a description of the book of Acts. 
And I want to finish here for this week, folks, because this gives us our task. This tells us what we are to do as followers of this this Christ who was crucified and has risen again. What are we to do? Well, we're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's how people are added to the kingdom of Christ. As far as the disciples were concerned when Jesus said this, King's Mills is the end of the earth. They couldn't have imagined anything beyond the Roman Empire. So here we are, and we are angels. We are messengers of Christ at the end of the earth. And each Sunday, having heard his word, we are sent out by Jesus. We're sent out to extend his kingdom in the hearts and minds of all those we come into contact with. We're not sent out to preach the end is nigh. We're sent out to share the truth that the world has ended. But there is new life. There is new life to be found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Let me pray for us.